Lauren Ida is the director and founder of Antipodes Collective. She is an artist, author, and entrepreneur. We discuss her roots, growing up in Seattle, her journey taking roads not traveled, and the lessons learned. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. My name is Lauren Ida. If you could... Name a biography or a book that was about your life. What would it be? I thought about this a lot. I think it would have to do with Two Roads, the the Robert Frost poem about two roads diverging in a yellow wood. Mm. Because I've always taken the road less traveled, mm. and I don't regret it. <laughs> oh, can you expand on that? Actually... A side note, the poem, I had this really inspiring teacher in high school, Mr. Kelly in ninth grade at Shoreline uh, High School, Shorewood High School, and he he made us all memorize the poem by Robert Frost, and he was like, okay, you have to memorize it, and you'll be tested individually on it, and if you don't memorize it and say it exactly right you'll fail the class oh my gosh and so we were all stressed out you know so i went home and i memorized it memorized it memorized it and it's about a person walking through the forest and they come across two road a split in the road and one looks like it's obviously been traveled on a lot and the Mm. other one looks like it hasn't been and the person chooses to take the one that's less traveled and that has made all the difference he says And so I, we all memorized it. Everyone in the class memorized it. And then the last day of school, he was like, yeah, I was just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to test you on it. But it worked because he wow. forced everyone to memorize it. And the poem has really stuck with me just as a metaphor for my life because I have often taken the road less traveled. And it's led me a lot of places that I'm really happy I ended up. Nice. Do you awesome. remember the poem? Yep. <laughs> Do you want me to say it? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, though having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. I shall be saying this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I chose the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Wow. Look at that. See, Domo and I probably couldn't tell you if you were right or wrong. We wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) But that's amazing. Sitting at home with it in front of them, I may have made some small mistakes. Yes. (laughs) I like Shel Silverstein. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I was just trying to make a joke. (laughs) Um, uh, If you are wondering, my co host today is Tay Thatch. Who are you? I'm just a person who is was Dom is your friend I would say you're my friend Domo I used to I used to supervise Domo he used to be he used to work with me at the ECC the Samuel E. Kelly they didn't know all of that oh sorry (laughs) we used to fight a lot but now we're better now absolutely now that we're not I'm not his boss and he's not my boss it's like two Gemini's so it's like four personalities always like clashing 
as it pertains to no blueprint tay is the amazing individual that holds down all of the camera work this season and a lot of the behind the scenes work and is also the person that introduced me to lauren ida yes i almost said ida but it's not ida it's ida ida I-I-D-A. Um, yes where were you born Mm, Redmond, Washington. Seattle, Washington. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Seattle. <laughs> no one knows where Redmond Nobody is. Sorry, Redmond. <laughs> you, can shout, you can shout out Redmond. I feel like I feel like enough of our mm-hmm. listeners are local that they'll know Redmond. I have no connection to Redmond except for that I was born there. That was the hospital that, that, <laughs> that, that the I was It's the hospital at. that was nearby. Where'd you grow? So did you grow up in Seattle? I grew up... Mostly in Seattle, in many different parts of Seattle. Okay. Yes. I okay. moved around a lot when I was a kid. Okay. All the way from Bothell to Queen Anne. Got it. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Hectic. <laughs> was there a particular reason? Not really. I mean, we just moved around a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Where'd you go to high school? Shorewood. Well, I went to Shorewood for one year. Uh-huh. I went to Shorewood for one year, and then I went to Switzerland for one year. Wow. What? Yeah, I went on exchange to Switzerland when I was 16. Yeah. Oh, I sorry, I went to Shorewood for two years, and then I went to, um, my junior year, I went to Switzerland for right. a year. Mr. Kelly. Okay. This very influential teacher. Dang, teacher. he dropped a poem on you, and he sent you to Switzerland? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Who God. Who is this man? He's amazing. We need to interview Mr. <laughs> Kelly. Drop I'd love that, to reconnect with Mr. Yeah, Kelly. Yeah, drop that in. Yeah. He was part of the Rotary Club. The Rotary Club sponsored students to go to other countries. And so I ended up going to Switzerland (laughs) for a year. What did your parents think about you going to Switzerland? My mother was... Yeah, they were both really supportive, actually. Because Switzerland is like the safest country that you could possibly ever Mm. go to. Okay. I mean, I was 16 years old. I was living with a host family. But they weren't that worried. I mean, at least they didn't seem that worried about yeah. me. It is literally like the safest, the safest country ever. Wow. So, yeah, it was a great time. Um, but to answer your question, I also came back, and then my senior year, I actually am a graduate of Liberty Bell High School in Twisp, Washington. Where's Twisp, Washington? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows where Twisp, Washington where is. Where's Twisp, Washington? It's in the North Cascades. Wow. Okay. In the Meadow Valley. Got it. It's smaller than Ellen's Where was Shorewood, Washington? Uh, Shorewood High School, I mean. Shoreline. Shoreline. Shoreline High School. Oh, Shorewood High School is in Shoreline. Got it. On this side. Got it. Wow. Twisp, Washington. All right. From Twisp. From Shoreline to Switzerland to Twisp. To Twisp. So when you got back from Switzerland. I got back from Switzerland. I spent my whole junior year there studying German. I went to like normal high school. It was really funny. Okay. I think the only classes I passed were English, art, and PE. <laughs> <laughs> and Spanish. Yeah, okay. I have Spanish. Wow. So you have you kinda got that world perspective pretty young, right? Well yeah, and so going back to my parents' opinion of me traveling abroad for a year, um, when I was sixteen, my mother has always loved to travel and she was really influential in my love of travel Mm -hmm. so when i was nine years old she became she was she volunteered to be a chaperone for my aunt's spanish class Uh traveling from yakima washington to spain for two weeks wow and so i got to tag along as a nine-year-old wait who was in yakima 
my aunt is a Sp- was a Spanish teacher in Yakima, yeah, well, nice. and she that- was taking her class to Spain for two weeks. That's dope. And my oh, wow. mom got to be the chaperone. Wow, they got to go to Spain. Uh, I no, went to like we crazy. went to like prison. <laughs> to, like, see, they, these are how you know if you break the law, this is where you're gonna go. For That's where. No, not for my Spanish <laughs> class. No, like just for like. <laughs> No, no, not for a Spanish class. This is like in fifth grade. This is in Florida. And like, what do you we, call- Listen, you didn't even have to tell us it was in Florida because I'm sure <laughs> everyone listening could guess that you grew up in Florida by going to prison. Yeah, <laughs> no, what do you call fun, like, right? prison it's for? A Florida, that's definitely a Florida thing. Youth jail, youth jail. We went to like a youth jail. That was like so traumatic. Anyways, sorry. That's awesome. On some scared straight shit? Yeah. Damn okay, sorry. So... <laughs> I got to go to Spain while you were in jail. I was in Spain. And I just was, my brain was turned inside out. I was like, this is amazing. And I still, I'm 33 years old now. I still remember very, very clearly everything we did, the names of every cathedral we went into, exactly what they looked like. Like I was really, really influenced by that. How many generations uh, had your family been in the U.S.? My great grandparents both emigrated from Fukushima. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. And my grand, my great grandmother was a picture bride. So wow. my great grandfather came over first, a little bit before 1900. Yeah. Wait, what's a picture bride? He came over first, and he became a migrant fruit picker, along with a lot of other Japanese men. And then once they had enough money, they would send for a wife, but mm. they wouldn't know that wife before. They would pick them out of a catalog, basically, oh, mm-hmm. like okay. it, or maybe with the help of a matchmaker, but they had not met before. Okay. And she came over. And so one really hilarious thing is that they would, they had like, <laughs> the, the whoever was on this side, in the California side, had one suit. Uh-huh. Like, a, like a nice suit, right? <laughs> and every man who wanted to had to sit get a picture wife, in that suit, put the suit on, and had like a Roman pedestal with like <laughs> an ornate design and a roll of paper that was supposed to look like a diploma and like some ivy like cascading down painted onto uh-huh. a canvas backdrop yeah and every man would pose looking like a scholar and yeah. then that photo would get sent on a boat to japan and yeah. then all the women would swoon and be like i want that one <laughs> and then they would just deception they would pack all up over and say goodbye to their entire families, family yeah. their lives their village get on a boat for a month to find Third out class. that to find out that this dude didn't even own that suit. That's nor right. Nor did he. Have a <laughs> that Japanese people were not allowed to own land. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so she shows up, and she's been ill with you know a hundred other seasick right. women in the bottom of a boat for a month, <sighs> and she's like, "Oh, finally, my rich husband is gonna come pick me up," and he lives in a tent oh. in a field. On an orchard <laughs> with like 20 other men. Oh no. Yeah. Yo. And she was my great grandparents. My great grandmother. Wow. Yeah. She never learned English. Wow. She was like, I feel like this could, she was pretty tough. Yeah. Yeah. I never met her. That's yeah. a crazy. I feel like this could be story. a whole podcast. I was going to say. Yeah. I kind of want to dig deeper, but I know we got to move on. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's, a, that's such a crazy story. So, my grandmother, who's 
I'm just turned 99 years old. She has photo. She has that photo, mm-hmm. the original photo of him in his in that suit, suit with That's a scroll. Crazy. And he has. She has photos of um, my great grandmother, and her photo album spans from that first photo. Yeah. Uh, the first photo of any of my relatives in America mm. to like now. Right. So That's all crazy. through internment wow um she's got lots of photos from inside from the inside the camp wow wow from her life in uh san francisco in the 30s working for the world's fair and the japanese pavilion Um, so i use a lot of those um in my artwork nice did you know that you were going to university afterwards was there did you have an option did you not really I didn't know that I was going, I didn't know what I was doing. I enrolled in community college. I didn't actually end up going into a bachelor degree program for about four years after mm-hmm. I graduated high school. Yeah. I was sort of waiting tables and like floating around and like not really doing much with my art. Sorta, not really. And then I started going to Cornish, but it's really expensive. So I had to also, I was going part-time, I had to work part-time, and then I had to wait for all this financial aid, but I wasn't old enough to be considered an independent, yeah, blah, 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 blah. It's 25. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, independent is 25, because oh, you get off your parents' insurance then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot, I know It's crazy. So it took me a while okay. to even enter Cornish. I did get a couple scholarships and some assistance from Cornish, and that was good. But I wasn't like, it was hard. It was really hard, Mm -hmm. the first um, year and a half or so. And then my Brazilian friend from Switzerland, Luada, she called me up and she was like, hey, I found a job for you in Australia. And I was like, okay, and I left. You went to Australia? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So she And this is in the middle of Cornish. This is a year and a half of part-time, into part-time Cornish. If I had continued to go part-time, it probably would have taken me maybe as long as it did take me. But I mean, it was so, I just wasn't, it was too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I was miserable. So Luana was like, hey, you want to come to Australia? I found a job for you. And uh, so I was like, yeah, sure. Anyway, she had befriended her professor at the Australian National University. He was a professor of political science and something else. Political science. Ooh, that's bad. I forgot what he was. Anyway, professor Mm -hmm. at Australian National University and he had a son who was half Brazilian. That's why they were friends. Anyway, Andre Mm -hmm. became my new job. Uh He was six years old and I was his nanny, his live-in nanny for like nine months wow and that was interesting i lived in canberra in the capital mm-hmm. which is notoriously boring okay. um <laughs> beautiful and australia was interesting and again i i was just itching to find the next way to expatriate i'm yeah. always like i want to live somewhere else yeah. and so i yeah i really enjoyed that that was really it was a good time and then every, all my friends down there said, you should go to Southeast Asia before you go home. Because mm-hmm. the plan was just for me to, to, you know, live out my one-year visa and then go home back to Seattle. Mm-hmm. But they were like, you should go to Southeast Asia. So I bought a 
ticket to Thailand because the exchange student who had replaced me when I was in Switzerland was Thai. Mm. His name was A. So I went to visit A and his family in Thailand. I bought a ticket to visit A and his family in Thailand. Mm. But the day that my ticket was the red shirt, yellow shirt protests yeah, in I Bangkok that. happened to shut down the airport. Oh. And so the airline was like, okay, where do you want to go instead? You can, we'll refund your ticket. You can go anywhere you want, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I had a friend in Australia who had a friend in Phnom Penh uh-huh. who's also Australian. He's a, a film producer and mm-hmm. videographer. And he, she called him and said, hey, I'm going to send my friend to you. Can you show her around? And mm. he said yes. So he met me at the airport. Mm. He drove a vintage bright orange Vespa. Okay. What year is this? Can you? 2008. 2008. Okay. With a big Al Pacino sticker on the front. <laughs> and he was like, okay, hop on. I had literally a tiny backpack. Wow. Okay. I was planning on staying for two weeks total in Southeast Asia. And we're zooming through traffic, through Phnom Penh. I can still hear the sounds and smell the smells and I remember exactly how that felt. It was hot and I'm like hanging on for dear life. With a stranger. With a stranger. I've basically never ridden a motorcycle before. I never met this person before. His name's Duff. Duckle Duff, yeah. And yeah, so we're zooming through traffic and uh, yeah. And he showed me around and I had from the very beginning a non-tourist experience of Cambodia which I think probably helped me fall in love with it quicker because I was just from the beginning like oh this is how you live here this is how we're all living here yeah and Michael Duff introduced me to all of his friends and yeah it was really fun so my two-week vacation turned into two years whoa yeah I didn't actually go back go back I just didn't get on the plane I did go to Thailand eventually and visited a and that was really fun too, but I already had fallen in love with Cambodia. So this was 08 to 2010? Yes. Wow. wow. So, yeah. That you was... were making me nervous. I was like, because I'm a person who needs like, to plan everything. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, wow, you're just like living it no, up. I just the you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's Not admirable. a planner. Not a planner. So I f- discovered in myself that I really had to do something to give back to the community if I was going to live in that community. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And so I decided to, to look to, to, I decided that moment to look around for a project that I could manage myself, yeah. that I could fundraise yeah. for myself, that I could be completely in charge of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I came across, um, through a friend, a group of women who had recently lost their funding for their sewing programs through a nonprofit called Cambodia Volunteers for Community Development, CVCD. And so they had been trained by CVCD to sew, but then the that section of their program didn't yeah. have money anymore. Mm-hmm. So all these women, there were five women, five young women. They were f- between the ages of twenty and twenty-five, and I at this time was like twenty-four years old. Yeah, so they were my age, and they were all from rural areas, and they had come to to study. Their families were like you know, yes, we don't want to feed you. We can't really afford to feed you. They're in really, really poor rural areas uh-huh. where they came from. So yes, this is a good opportunity. You go get a skill. We don't have to feed you. And so these women had learned how to sew and their teacher also was out of a job now. Her name is Meng Lai. Yeah. So Meng Lai said, I'm going to start a business. Mm-hmm. So she had some 
some seed money saved up to open a, a shop front where she employed all these women, these five women, to be seamstresses just for any client. So like custom tailored clothing is like a big thing in Cambodia. Mm. So in Cambodia, I, at that at that time, 15 pounds ago, almost 10 years ago. 15 pounds? 15 pounds ago and almost 10 years ago <laughs> was like an extra, extra, extra large clothing size in Cambodia. Wow. Oh. So I got an office job working for a bookshop and I had to have like nice clothes. Yeah. And so I, I would go to the market and walk up to this each stall and just stand in front and go like this and be like, you got anything for me? And they would laugh at me and be like, no! And then send me to the next one. Because I'm so large. Big over there. Large over there so in the Cambodian context. Not large mm-hmm. here. Nothing wrong with being large anyways, but... Anyway, I can't <laughs> find anything that fits me at all. So I have to go to a custom tailor shop. Yeah. So I go to this shop. And I start getting all my clothes tailored. And I'm like le- learning about their story. And oh, this is cool. Ming Lai's taking control of her own destiny and yeah. helping these women. And yeah. Stuff and so I ordered some clothes and then I was like, oh maybe maybe this is my project right. So Ming Lai, Ming Lai was like, how do I make my business better? How do I get foreign mm. customers? And I was like, well you need to be making things that foreigners like to wear. So yeah. natural fibers, cotton, breathable, more mute colors like linen, cotton, not and like lime green and bright yeah. pink, less Hello Kitty, less <laughs> sequins, and That's so. Funny. Yeah, and so I basically went to the market and bought a bunch of fabric. Wow. And then I took elements from my own clothes because I'm not a clothing designer. I'm an artist, but I'm not a clothing designer. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I like this sleeve over here, and I like this, put it with this length and this buttons or whatever. And I designed a line of women's apparel. Nice. So they sewed the women's apparel, and then I paid them a salary. At that point, I paid them a salary. I was Mm -hmm. able to pay them a salary. So before me... They were earning five. They were charging five dollars for a custom-made dress, including material. Five dollars! Oh my god! For a dress, yeah. yeah. And I was charging twenty-eight to thirty-five dollars for a dress to my customers, and I wasn't taking anything. Mm-hmm. So all the money was going back into a salary pool for the five women and Meng Lai, and so I was able to pay them like a fair wage right away, and wow. it was great. So um, you're not only an artist, you have like a business mindset I as do well. Have a business okay. mind, That's awesome. Which I didn't know before this project. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I learned everything the hard way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, I have a lot of strong women in my family who are independent business owners. Mm-hmm. My aunt and my mother and my other aunt. And yeah. Wow. So I've had a lot of role models, whether I knew it or not at yeah. the time, the, those things definitely influenced nice. me. Yeah. And so Anyway, so then Meng Lai, after like two months, I realized she's just taking all the money and putting it in her own pocket. Oh, no. And I was like, I'm, so I'm like trying to figure out, you know. And it's kind of awkward, right? Because you, you know her. She's probably older. Yeah, she's older than me. Yeah. So this is a cultural thing where you're like, do I call it out? Scammer. Oh, I didn't have any question about whether or not. Oh, I you're like, I'm going to call her out. No, I just try- wanted to make sure that I was, that what was happening was real. Yeah. That I knew what was happening. I also started working with Sambo, my friend Sambo, who's this young woman, amazing young woman, Cambodian. I met her in the bus yeah. on the way back from Patsambang one time in 2008. And she became my business manager, translator. At that time, I didn't really speak Khmer. And so, yeah, turned out Meng Lai was just pocketing all the money. So again, 
I went back to the drawing board and I was like, do I stop working with these people altogether? Do I start my own shop? Yeah. Do I go back to America and wash my hands of this? And I was like, okay, I'm gonna start my own shop. So I called my friend and I was like, can you please buy me a ticket? I don't have any money. Mm-hmm. I want a plane ticket to come to America to fundraise mm-hmm. for this idea I have. So he bought me a ticket. A I great came back friend. for 10 days. <laughs> I came back for 10 days to Seattle and I literally told every single person that I encountered that I wanted to start the sewing shop and why and I wanted to help these young women and I wanted to do this and I wanted to do that and showed pictures of the dresses. I brought a suitcase full of stuff over and sold as much of it as I could, had trunk sales and then I raised $2,000 in 10 days. And then I went back to Cambodia and I found a place to rent and I opened a shop. Wow. But, it, but it's empty. It's just an empty <laughs> shop front, right? How old were you In now? an alley. 24. 24, okay. Ish. Yeah, 24, 25 maybe. Not 24. This is like 2009. So then I had to find a way to get the girls to know that I was serious. Mm-hmm. To leave Menglai without Menglai getting Ooh, suspicious. Drama. drama! This is some drama <laughs> following or whatever. And then it's a big ethical question, right? Do right. I walk away from these women who are clearly being exploited by Menglai? Mm. Or do I steal Menglai's livelihood? Oh, mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sips too. And so I made the choice at the time to steal all her employees. Seattle. Mark your calendars for Saturday, August 11th at 6 p.m. No Blueprint will be recording a live podcast centered around coffee at the Northwest Film Forum. Stay tuned and visit our website for more details coming soon. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. So I called one. You know, we had one little brick phone between the five of them. Whatever. And one by one they came, but they were so worried. They were like, we don't have 50 cents to take the motorbike taxi across town from our place to your place. And that was like their biggest worry. And they literally came with little plastic bags. They had like one change of clothes and like they were all sharing a toothbrush and it was, yeah, they were in bad shape. Yeah. And one of them had been clearly seriously sexually abused. And I didn't really get that before. Like I didn't have enough one-on-one time with her that I really noticed. And I think moving and stuff brought out some of that trauma. So she would sit, oh, anyway, she would, eventually we got sewing machines. We took out a microloan. They took out a microloan that I connected them with through Kiva.org and AMK. And so they had enough money to each buy their own sewing machine mm-hmm. and a overlocker and some scissors and whatever. And then the money that I raised bought fabric and started us going, yeah. put the deposit down on the rental space and stuff. So anyway, um, this one woman, she would, Sreilek is her name, Sreilek would sit at the sewing machine all day and cry. Mm. She was so traumatized. And Mm. she wouldn't even stand outside the front door Mm. by herself during the day Mm. because she was afraid of getting kidnapped or that somebody crazy would approach her. I don't know what she was really afraid of. And again, at this time, I don't speak, I didn't speak Khmer enough to have a conversation with her and nobody really wanted to ask and she yeah. didn't really say anything. So we just were there for her and just like, you know, yeah. ate mm-hmm. meals together. They all slept there. We all ate together. I lived above the shop and yeah, we just 
hoped that we would avoid Meng Lai at the fabric shop, <laughs> at the fabric area of the market, and continue to make these clothes. And eventually we opened a shop in Siem Reap near the temples of Angkor Wat, mm-hmm. in the tourist area, with another friend of mine. And we also started exporting to the United States. And it was, it sustained five women, five seamstresses, and Sambo at fair wages for about four years. Wow. No. Okay. That's How do you navigate, like, the internal American capitalist mindset as you're like trying to run a business because you still had to pay rent, you still had to like pay your employees and fair wage, you still had to pay yourself. Yeah, like how did how did you navigate all of that along with like just the internal moral conflict between like taking this woman's livelihood? I I don't know how <laughs> to answer that. I don't know if I really understand the question. So like... I didn't take anything for myself at all. I didn't okay. pay, I paid my rent with yeah. the money and I also ate the food that I bought for them. Yeah. But I was in serious, serious financial ruin when okay. I came back okay. from all that. Yeah. I mean, I was yeah. young and I didn't know better and I didn't care, right. you know? I right. was like, eh, okay. I don't need stuff, yeah. 24. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't draw a salary. Right. Right. Okay. I did somehow live on some part of that, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it was just food and drink and a room to sleep in. Have you ever run into Ming Lai? No. No. (laughs) She's still out there somewhere. She's still out there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and in, you know, I did confront her before I stole her employees. I did say, (laughs) I think you're stealing from them. Yeah. I would like you to not do that anymore. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. But uh, six, six against or five against one, one, and and they're you know and they're coming yeah. With, yeah. to you with the kind of like the facts, like hey, this is what's yeah. happening. It's like a moral thing, got it? Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. So because yeah, that's interesting because like like it is inherently an American thing to do, like yet. It's also inherently a like right versus right versus wrong thing of you're not paying these employees. I want I am going to pay these employees and I'm going to yeah. do right. But now you like internally have to you have to do that and yeah. you have to sit on that and like move forward and do yeah. right by these women because now they're your respon- Now they're, they're your full responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. That was, yeah, I think that's very, yeah. really, it was a bold move. I think that was a good move. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I would do it again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Say more about that. I don't think that I would do that again, but at, I have at done. At 24, you wouldn't take responsibility of five women? No, no, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I don't yeah. regret that at all, but if the same opportunity presented itself now, I don't think I would do it. Mm-hmm. But... I still do a lot of things that people find really risky in terms of that. When when I want to help somebody, mm-hmm. when I find somebody who I feel like I can help in some way, mm-hmm. I tend to take more risks on mm. that. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. Sometimes right. it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And that's something that I've had to really... I mean, of course, sometimes I've been absolutely devastated. Mm-hmm. I've gotten completely cheated by people who I've sure. helped a lot. 
Yes, you yeah, know. Sure. So fast forward, you have an art space in Kampot. Yes, I currently have what I'm calling an open studio, okay. <laughs> which is my workspace. And I work with a Cambodian artist, an emerging artist called Chan Poon, mm-hmm. in Chan Poon. Mm. And we open the doors every Wednesday and most Sundays and most Saturdays mm-hmm. to kind of an ever-growing network of artists who live in the area. They're from France, Australia, Thailand, the Netherlands, they're Cambodian-American, they're Cambodian from Cambodia, mm-hmm. they're at all levels of skill of art and craft. Yes. And this is pretty new, actually, that I've tried this model where I just open the doors and invite people to come. Mm-hmm. So there's no charge to anyone. They can use materials that I have. Yes. Some have been donated. And we just make art together. Yes. So, yeah, we have dancers, we have spoken word artists, we have poets, we have painters, we have... Nice. Crocheters. Wow. And you recently did a show, an o- well, a I guess not a months. show, open, what would you call it? It's like an exhibit a couple months Exhibition, ago. Yes. Yeah. 100 Aspects of the Moon. Yes. yes. And that's this is kind of the, what, where I kind of want to talk about yeah. the paper cutting, right? Yes. How did you choose paper cutting as your medium? I chose paper cutting as my medium because of poverty. <laughs> Because I was an oil painter Uh before I went to Cambodia. I was an oil painter at Cornish. Mm -hmm. And I went to Cambodia for two years and did all these things I told you about where Mm -hmm. I took no salary for myself. So Mm -hmm. when I came back, I was living in a one-bedroom basement apartment with a roommate. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I could not buy oil paints. Mm -hmm. I could not suffocate myself in that little apartment Mm -hmm. when I was using oil paints. Yeah, yeah. So um, out of necessity. Out of necessity. So I was like, I have all these great photos, these great images, these great gestures, these great feelings, these great experiences I want to share through my art with everyone. But I can't show them as photos because the photos, you know, we have these stupid little point and shoot digital cameras back then. They're not like art quality. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how can I translate these images into something else that's not oil paint and then i was like what's simpler what's simpler what's simpler and the most simple thing you can possibly make art with is to to, by taking away pieces out of a blank sheet of white paper Mm. so that's what i started doing based on my photographs that i had been taking in cambodia for two years and then that eventually moved into my my first like real put together exhibition was in 2014 mm-hmm. at the Cornish Gallery, Cornish Alumni Gallery, which was called Castle Rock is for Lovers. Castle Rock was in a, was a place um, was a little hill mm-hmm. outside of the Thule Lake internment camp where my family was during World War II, where they the guards eventually let young lovers mm-hmm. go. So it was like you could go for a day hike and the guards would let you out because you're in the middle of the desert and you're not going to go anywhere. (laughs) And so they would let people go to the top of Castle Rock. And that's where my, you know, my grandma, my 99 year old grandmother's husband courted her on top of Castle Rock. Oh, wow. And she's got photos from up there of her and her friends picnicking on top of this hill, looking back down at the barracks. Wow. And so I started make I made a whole exhibition called Castle Rock is for Lovers. And this is your first exhibit for Paper Cut. Yeah, that was my first real exhibition for Paper Cut. Nice. 
Wait, did you graduate from Cornish? I did. I I went back to Cornish yeah. after I came back to the states in 2010. Okay. It took me another four years. Got it. Got it. I was like, wait, alumni. <laughs> yeah, 2014. Yeah. She's still taking classes there part time. No, no, no. <laughs> I have the diploma. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Where do we go on from here? What? So, <laughs> let's talk about the memory net. The memory that's net. My exhibition that's happening Coming up. now. Yeah. So, yes. And the memory net. So the memory net is a. The original memory net was a 30-foot-long paper-cut piece. It's one sheet of paper, and it's like a fishing net, mm -hmm. and it contains objects, which I correlate with a specific memory or person, pretty mm -hmm. much. So there, I created a language of objects with a key. Mm -hmm. So each person got a key when they walked into the gallery at mm -hmm. Art Exchange Gallery in Pioneer Square. Mm -hmm. I debuted it in 2017. And you can see like the champa flower, like the plumeria flower, mm -hmm. means childhood innocence, for mm -hmm. example. Or the reading glasses mean like persevering and self-educating despite hardship. Mm -hmm. So like homage to my relatives who still studied inside the internment camps or still, you know, made things, made crafts, had clubs, had hobbies mm -hmm. inside the yeah. camps went to school, had social clubs and yeah. stuff like that. And also to my friends who survived the Khmer Rouge, who risk, literally risked their lives to go out at night and go to a known educated person's house and study French and yeah. chemistry like my uncle Nan. Yeah. And like the severed duck head means corruption and the scissors mean a lack of forgiveness mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. So all these objects that you find in my memory net have to do with some specific memory or experience or person and so the way that they're arranged within the net or within other two-dimensional pieces like wall hanging pieces tells a story about that person or about that time that experience yeah and so i'm recreating the memory net starting july 28th this coming saturday mm -hmm. and finishing by uh, august 11th okay it's a couple days so august 11th will be the closing reception of the memory net project this time so i'm opening the doors to this little gallery space in ballard called the vestibule in north ballard and it's a live work space it's actually an airbnb so it's like this little room and i'm gonna have my table and my knife and this 30 foot long piece of paper and i'm just gonna start start cutting and i'm inviting the, the public my community, my friends, and it's open to anyone to come contribute an object that they would like to see in my net that reminds them of home. Mm -hmm. So this, this net is specifically about home. And it comes from me living between Seattle and Cambodia. Like I'm constantly missing Cambodia when I'm in Seattle and I'm constantly missing Seattle mm -hmm. when I'm in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And I just keep going around and around and around, but that becomes my life. So I love right. them both equally and I, I miss people from here when I'm there and the other way around. So I want to know what home means to my community and mm -hmm. my community being anybody that walks in the door and comes to spend time with me. So you can write down your object or you can draw your object and just like one or two sentences about why you chose that object and mm -hmm. what it means to you regarding home, why it reminds you of mm -hmm. something. could be a figurative place called home or a person or a real place or a previous home or something you've lost that you wish you had. 
I'm also officially represented by Art Exchange Gallery in Pioneer Square, so you can always see my art there. Hey. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. What advice would you give folks who were looking to do something similar and go to a different country and, like, just work and do as artists, of course? I would say throw away all your apprehensions okay. <laughs> and dive in head first. Yeah. Do everything. Take every opportunity to get to know people, to try something new, to take a risk. I mean, I think, I personally think that in America, on the whole, we're so afraid okay. to branch okay. out of our health insurance, our safety precautions, mm. our rigid way of believing about the world we're a big country we don't we aren't often forced to go outside of our country mm -hmm. to see or do anything because we basically have everything we quote-unquote need mm -hmm. in america and i meet out of out of all the developed western countries pretty much i meet a surprisingly small amount of americans who are traveling in southeast asia who are living in southeast asia and I find that Americans on the whole are really afraid mm -hmm. to, to, they couldn't imagine expatriating. It's like some, it's like there's some people who could expatriate yeah. and some people who just don't do that, you know? Yeah. But, but now the current administration, you might see more. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Actually, no, that is really true. A lot of people recently right, have right. told me that they have serious plans. To Canada, hey. Yeah. <laughs> or farther away. When you dive deeper into a culture, a foreign culture, when you actually spend more than two weeks there or mm. more than a month there consecutively, you you really start to learn about the place. Mm -hmm. But you don't know anything about any place that you visit for for six months or less, in right. my yeah. opinion. Right. And so, but it's truly, it can be truly a magical experience to... Mm throw away all your preconceived notions of what humans do, right. what humans think, how humans live. And you really start to realize that there are as many ways of living a life as there are humans on the planet. Mm -hmm. Every single person is trying for the same basic things, you know, security, happiness, family, you know, financial security, physical health or whatever. But everyone's going about it in a completely different way mm -hmm. and some things that we couldn't imagine letting go of or couldn't imagine doing mm -hmm. other people are doing and letting go of every day mm -hmm. and so when you you know now i i find myself my life is forever changed by mm -hmm. cambodia mm -hmm. i will never be the same mm -hmm. and i i live in a way that is between cultures yeah. right. truly right yeah. i'm a foreigner in both places absolutely yeah. That's real. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we didn't talk about your book. S. <laughs> Books. S. Um, one more thing I want to add, though, is that I uh, I can't stress enough when yeah. you're when you come across a social issue in a foreign country that mm. you think you can help with, the first thing to do is to shut your mouth <laughs> and sit down. Yeah. And listen. Speaking well, you don't want to be the savior. Yeah. <laughs> Cambodia is full of saviors. saviors. Oh, sure. oh, for sure. I was there. I have been the savior. <laughs> I've tried to be the savior. Yeah. And obviously that didn't work out from yeah. all the stories I've just yeah. told you. Yeah. Being the savior is not the point. 
Yeah. You have to ask yourself honest questions about why you're doing it. Are right. you doing it for selfish reasons? Yeah. yeah. Are you doing it for for truly helpful reasons? And most importantly, ask the people that you're quote unquote trying to help yeah. what they actually need. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, your time in Cambodia, do you come across a lot of like expatriates? Is it ex, is it called expats? Yeah, ex- expats, expats, expats and nonprofits that you kind of just like butt heads with, or is it? Do you avoid them if you think they're problematic? Like, what is that relationship like? I is there a relationship? Never, I will never work for any nonprofit ever again, besides the nonprofit that I founded, mm. which is the Antipodes Collective. <laughs> <laughs> And so we're a 501c3, and when I started out, I also, in addition to creating um, high-quality learning materials for Cambodian children, I also wanted to have this English and art program in this rural area, and it just didn't work out. So even though I really wanted it to work out, Mm -hmm. it didn't work out, and I had to to let it go. I had to say goodbye to that whole portion of my mission with the nonprofit, with my nonprofit, because it wasn't working. And I think that's also really important. Be be adaptable. Being adaptable is extremely important. You may want to save all the prostitutes in Cambodia from (laughs) prostitution, but you can't. Yeah. Mm. So the Antipodes Collective brings together artists and writers from around the world to create high quality learning materials for Cambodian children because of the because of Pol Pot's um, Khmer Rouge genocide in the late 1970s there really aren't very many relatively mm-hmm. uh, high quality learning materials especially bilingual ones which help Cambodian children learn English basically or or just are interesting content for mm-hmm. kids to to develop a love for reading or an interest in reading and so we in 2014 came out with our first book which was collaboratively illustrated by a group of Cornish students and co-written by myself and Carolyn Arhall and then this year we came out with two we published two more books the first one is by a Danish author named Pil Anna Testorp it's called Colors of Cambodia all our books are available on Amazon and the second book is transcribed by me. It's originally a Punong, indigenous ethnic minority folktale called Ratan Woman. And it's, it's an ancient story. So it's been passed down orally through the generations. But this organization called the Mondulkiri Resource and Documentation Center hired me to help transcribe it so that it's in better English and grammatically correct so I edit it basically mm-hmm. and I worked with the Punong storytellers to make sure the facts were correct mm-hmm. and you know make the flow of the story um, more palatable for a children's book mm-hmm. and then I also illustrated it with my hand cut paper okay. um, and watercolor and it's both in Khmer and English so there's two versions of Ratan Woman. Mm-hmm. One is in English and Khmer language, mm-hmm. and the other one is in English and Penang language, mm. okay. with, written with Cambodian letters. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Legit. So all yeah. those books, all 100% of the proceeds benefit the Antipodes Collective and the Model Curie Resource and Documentation Center yeah. um, for Ratan Woman. Wow. That's awesome. That's super dope. So Diana, my fiance, parents, her grandparents, I should say, uh, migrated from China to Cambodia and were in camps during the their family was in camps during the Khmer Rouge oh, wow. and then her father I'm not sure his story and how he migrated how his family migrated to Cambodia but 
he was escaping camps in the Khmer Rouge um, and ended up going through Vietnam and Thailand before um, coming to the U.S. And it's a, that's a one day I will interview him, and, uh, <laughs> or it'll be a documentary or, or a book or something because yeah, it's a hell amazing. of a story. Yeah. So yeah. So many incredible. I mean, your family. I'm sure right. Well, oh, my family's kind of different because we're we're in Vietnam. So I think mm-hmm. in one aspect they felt you know blessed that they didn't have to go through that right. because they were in Vietnam but then there's all these like stories about okay well we're an ethnic minority in Vietnam whose land no it's I mean it's, it's touchy with Cambodia and Vietnam it's really touchy I was touchy. gonna say I was like that had to be a, uh, that had to be a story within itself I mean and then and then you just get to the folks who migrated to this country during the late 70s and like or just 70s slash 80s yeah and that's another story in itself yeah and so that's that's super interesting yeah yes thank you so much thank this you. was super awesome it's a super interesting story i can't wait for the book well the book's right here no i mean like her her <laughs> her autobiography 150 pages see how i knew that i didn't know that Boom. how did you know that just <laughs> intuition oh, okay you know mel's got that too sometimes <laughs> not all of us are so lucky <laughs> my name is lauren ida and you're listening to no blueprint yay if you liked what you heard be sure to donate so we can keep going we are on soundcloud itunes and youtube So be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Mayawa Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.